Amen. Well, good morning to you. Welcome again to Bible Center Church. My name is Matt Friend. I'm the senior pastor, and it is great worshiping with you on Palm Sunday. I love what God is doing in your heart and what he's doing in our church. Today, we're launching a three-week series on furious love, the furious love of God. The details are in your bulletin. Uh, but essentially, we're looking at the last part of the Gospel of Luke. The first part of Luke deals with who Jesus is. It speaks primarily to our minds. Uh, the middle part of Luke speaks to what Jesus calls us to do, so it speaks to our will. But the last few chapters of the Gospel of Luke were intended to be read, of course, like one big letter. And as the early church would have read through these 24 chapters, they would have been impressed with what Jesus had done for them. It would move them emotionally. It would speak to their hearts. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at just that, what God has done for you in his amazing, relentless, furious love. We're going to carry this through a Good Friday, this coming Friday at 7 o'clock right here. We'll have communion. And our worship team has really put together a beautiful service for Good Friday. We're going to try to engage all five senses where we're going to be able to read the scriptures together, have times of meditation and silence. Of course, we'll be able to taste the juice and the bread in communion. All the senses involved as we meditate on what Jesus has done for us. It's about an hour-long service. Bring the kids We'd love to have them. We'd love to have you this Friday right here in the worship center. And then on Sunday, of course, is Easter. And many of you have asked if you can have more invite cards. The answer is absolutely yes. I love these little cards. They've been a big help to me this week. You feel free to grab some, as many as you like, until they're gone. And uh, looking forward to next Sunday as we celebrate Jesus's resurrection. Today is Palm Sunday. It's traditionally the day the church has celebrated Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And I was working on the sermon earlier in the week, and I had, I had a beautiful sermon, not ready, but almost ready. And I'm telling you, it was going to be beautiful. You'd have loved it. Uh, but, but halfway through the week, the Lord just really changed my direction about uh, the sermon I was going to preach. Instead of looking at the three different characters, uh, the religious leaders, the crowd, the different people in the crowd, I was impressed as I read through Luke 19 that there is a character I have never fully appreciated. There's a character that Luke uh, writes about in more detail, in greater detail than any other gospel writer. And that character is none other than the donkey. The donkey can teach us a lot in the gospel of Luke about Palm Sunday. Now I also want to confess that I was Googling donkey jokes this week and there were going to be some good jokes, but I decided not to tell any of them because I don't want to lose my job. So I'm not going to tell any of those donkey jokes. You can just use your imagination. But even just the thought that Luke would include a donkey as somebody we can learn from just shows the beauty and the creativity of God. Maybe you ask yourself, how in the world could I learn anything from a donkey? What could a donkey uh, teach me? Well, I thought prior to this week that donkeys were stupid, but actually they're smarter than horses. One study in uh, the Denver Post says that not only are they smarter than horses, but they form greater emotional bonds than dogs. If you earn their trust, donkeys can do more for you than just about any other pet, including carrying in your groceries. I decided this week I want to get a donkey. 
after the 8 a.m. service or before the 8 a.m. service, I was talking to one of our members and he was telling me that he has a donkey. I've actually seen it. I've been to his farm. And he said that, Matt, one thing you, you, you got to make sure you mention that not only are donkeys smart, but they can also teach you to fly. And I said, how in the world can donkeys teach you to fly? He said, well, this past summer, he was on his donkey, hadn't broken it. He was trying to break it so he could ride it. And sure enough, his donkey bucked him and taught him how to fly. Donkeys are brilliant. We can learn a lot from Jesus's donkey. I'm convinced that his donkey will help us be better Christians. It'll help us be better church, be better fathers, better mothers, better grandparents. And even if you're not a believer and somebody invited you to church, I'm convinced this story will even help you be a better citizen. I'm going to read from Luke 19. I invite you to open up your Bible or your Bible app. It's also going to be on the screen. Let me invite you to stand as I read Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. I read from the NIV, but feel free to follow along in the Bible of your choice. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Picture this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what can we learn from Jesus' donkey? Number one, the king sees me. The king sees me. You can picture the scene. Jesus is about as far from Jerusalem as we are from Ashton Place, Kroger, just a few miles away. And on his way up the hill to Jerusalem, of course, crossing over the Mount of Olives and then across the valley into the holy city, Jesus knows he, he's to come in on a donkey. He sends his disciples ahead of time uh, to pick up a donkey from the little suburb of Bethany called Bethphage. And we don't know exactly how he knew the donkey was there. It's possible he'd been through that area a number of times. Maybe he knew the owner. 
But it's also highly possible and probable that Jesus, because he's God and knows all things, knows exactly where this donkey is going to be. I tend to think that's more the case because even the owner was surprised that Jesus had sent for his donkey. The picture here is is very similar to that of John chapter 1. Jesus is calling his 12 disciples. One of those disciples is named Philip. And as he tells Philip, hey, go, go and, and recruit your brother, go and get your brother, Philip goes to get his brother Nathaniel. And he begs Nathaniel, come and follow Jesus with me. At first, Nathaniel says, absolutely not, I'm not going, who is this Jesus? But Philip finally convinces him. When Nathaniel goes quite a distance to meet with Jesus, the first thing Jesus says to him in John chapter 1 and verse 48, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, I saw you. I knew you before you knew me. This is a beautiful picture to remind us that God not only sees Nathaniel, God not only sees the donkey, but God sees you. At the heart of human existence, we all long to be seen. We want to be noticed, which is why social media is so prominent, and which is why we don't ultimately enjoy being alone. There are times I like being alone. But I had a guy sitting in my living room this past week who reminded me that one of the greatest fears of humanity is dying alone, being sick alone. None of us at the heart truly want to be alone because God has created us to be seen. So at the very beginning of the message this morning, I want to encourage you that God knows you. He knows the hairs on your head or for some of us, soon to be the lack thereof. God knows where you live. God knows what your burdens are. God knows what your cares are. God sees you. He has not forgotten you. He has not left you behind. The king sees me. There's another lesson we learn from the donkey, and that is the king wants me. The king wants me. Jesus sends two of his disciples verses 31 through 35, to fetch him a donkey. It's much like you and I would ask somebody to go and rent us a car. Go up to the airport and and rent me a car. The disciples had to be disappointed that Jesus chose a donkey instead of a war horse. I mean, kings rode steeds. Why in the world would Jesus want a donkey? John Wayne rode a horse. The Lone Ranger rode a horse. Don Quixote rode a horse. Only Sancho Panza rode a donkey. Why would Jesus ask for a donkey? You can picture as they huddled themselves together and begin to consult Jesus. Jesus, you really need a PR consultant. Your image really isn't good, right? If you're going to take over the Roman Empire, at least if you're going to free Jerusalem from Roman rule, you've got to have a stronger image. Let's get you a horse. But Jesus knows what the Old Testament had prophesied. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet said, see your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. 
Jesus knew the owner would question him why in the world they were coming for his donkey. And so Jesus says, when the owner asks what you're doing, probably questioning them like common horse thieves, Jesus said, just tell them that I need it. And there's probably a supernatural element in that, but more than likely the owner, as soon as the the disciples said Jesus needs it, they would have known exactly who he was. Jesus was very, very famous in Bethany, in the suburbs around Bethany. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. He had done a number of miracles. And many of the people from Bethany were probably the people that were truly cheering for Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. They were throwing their coats in the road. They were celebrating Jesus because they knew him. They were amazed by him. And so the owner quickly lets them take the donkey. We have no record that the donkey could talk. There are talking donkeys in the Bible. Uh, all the way back to Balaam in the book of Numbers. But this just seems like an ordinary donkey. But if the donkey could talk, let's use our imaginations. Picture as maybe the donkey would have said, the king chose me. The king wants me. The king not only sees me, but he has chosen me to carry him into Jerusalem. There's this elevation of the donkey in the story because he was chosen by Jesus. Now Luke is doing a number of things as Luke writes his gospel. One of the things he's doing is he's setting up Jesus to be better than any of the Roman heroes. It was a common form of literature in that day for, for Greek writers, Roman writers to write about the hero and put this big biography about a hero. And Luke is doing that, but he's showing that Jesus just isn't the ordinary hero. He is the king of kings and lord of lords the one whom all of earth has been looking for. Jesus is the hero. Have you ever noticed that it seems like on the hearts of all human beings, there's this desire for a hero? I mean, even in the legends of like King Arthur and Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table, why is it that little girls like princesses and princes? And why is it that we long for kings and queens? Why is it that in the 1930s and the 1940s, the world was so quick to to even put somebody on the throne, so to speak, like Hitler and Mussolini? Why, Why do we love Marvel comics or DC comic characters? Why do we crave Batman? All all movies are the same, right? Like there's a problem, there's a challenge, you get to know the hero, the best movies make the heroes more like us, but in the end, a hero comes and saves the day. Why is that? I'm convinced it's because on our hearts, all the way back from the Garden of Eden, we have this residue, this leftover craving for somebody to come and save us. And even if that person is evil, even if that person is not godly, we'll be so quick to put them on the throne of our lives because we crave a hero. C.S. Lewis wrote this, where we are forbidden to honor a king, we will honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters for spiritual nature like bodily nature will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison. We just crave the king. And 
early American colonies, it was assumed that there would be no sovereign over us, no sovereign for America. But you know, even though we're Americans, we still crave a sovereign. We really do. Again, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were able to be in the presence of this perfect king with perfect love and perfect beauty, but they chose that they wanted to be king instead. And in that moment when they chose themselves, they lost their king and were expelled from the garden. But for thousands and thousands of years, not only is it written on our hearts, but it's in our traditions, it's in our stories because we crave for somebody to come and make the world right. Last night, the news that we heard here just outside of Charleston, why does that happen? It's another evidence that we live in a broken world of pain and death and sin and suffering and it affects all of us. Why do hurricanes happen? Why do typhoons happen? It's because of the decision that Adam and Eve made all the way back in the garden. Sin broke us. But here on Palm Sunday, the king comes riding into town. Make no mistake what Jesus was doing. Jesus coming into town was not just clicking off the next item on his agenda. This was the first time that he was publicly and boldly declaring himself to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As you read the Gospels over and over again, there were times where Jesus would, you would see him tell the disciples, hey, let's not tell everybody the miracles I just did. And you're like, why would Jesus say that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would over and over again he say, let's, let's just keep it down for now? Because Jesus knew that he had more work to do. And as soon as he declared himself king, he knew they'd want to kill him. But here coming into Jerusalem, Jesus' message was simple. Crown me or kill me. There is no in-between. And this morning, the message to you from Jesus is simple. Crown him or kill him. There is no in-between. There is no, well, I like Jesus, but I'm not sure he is God. No, as Jesus came into Jerusalem fulfilling all the prophecies, he said, I am the king and I want you to be with me in heaven. I want you to be with me in eternity, but you have to want me too. The king sees me. The king, he wants me. He wants me to be with him. But there's another lesson the donkey learned, and that is that the king calms me. The king calms me. Verses 36 through 40, we see that the donkey had never been ridden. Did anybody here grow up on a farm? Anybody grow up on a farm? Okay. Has anybody ever, anybody ever ridden a donkey? Just curious. Just not the question you thought your pastor was going to ask you this morning. Yeah, okay, a few of you? Sure, hopefully you didn't have the same experience as uh, Richard has had. He told me earlier this morning. But you don't just jump on a donkey. Or you don't just jump on a horse that hasn't been broken. And so you can imagine, the text says specifically, this horse had never been ridden. Not only that, it's very noisy. As they're coming into Jerusalem, there's people cheering and people clapping and people yelling, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
They were quoting Psalm 118 because they knew Jesus was claiming to be the King of Kings, the Messiah. There was some negative energy, no doubt, on the parade. There was a group of people who didn't want Jesus there, mostly the religious leaders. You see, Jesus interrupted their way of life. And, and, but for the most part, it was a positive event. If you've ever run a 5K or maybe a marathon or a half marathon, you know what it's like to have people cheer you on. I remember my first marathon in Louisville, I think it was 2012. I, I got to about mile 25. You know, you're already dying like at mile 10, but you know, mile 25, I just knew I had a mile left. I was so hungry. I'd had plenty to drink. I drank at all the water stops, but I hadn't quite learned yet how to eat. And I got with one mile left, there was this guy who owned a Krispy Kreme donut shop. And he's standing out there with boxes of donuts and he's holding them open and he's just smiling. I still remember the look on that guy's face. It was like light from heaven was coming down on the donut man. <laughs> and, and I grabbed a couple of donuts. They disintegrated in my mouth. They were so good. I have no idea what that has to do with the sermon, but it, it's the crowd cheered him on. The donkey should have been spooked, but he wasn't spooked. There were about 40,000 people in Jerusalem at this time, uh, this, at this date. But during Passover, that number would have swelled to over 200,000 due to all the traveling guests. In and around Jerusalem, throughout Israel, there could have been one to two million Jews who had come from the Roman Empire to make their pilgrimage for Passover. And they're all waving, flailing these palm fronds. You ever wonder why we call it Palm Sunday? What's the purpose of the palm fronds? You know, it's just one of those cultural differences. It's easy to explain. If those people could look into the future and see the way we throw confetti, they would think we're crazy. Like, why are those people throwing that stuff into the air? It's the same. It was like their confetti. The palms were also on their coins, uh, palms were a, seen, were a sign of, uh, of, of Israel's nationalism. It was a symbol of their freedom. And so just like we have the bald eagle, they celebrated with palm fronds. And it was also connected to a famous Jewish festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. But the donkey never locked up. Donkeys being smarter than horses, the reason they lock up, we say that they're being stubborn, but they're actually because they're smarter so you students and you kids, if you're in this service and your parents call you stubborn, just say, no, I'm being smart like a donkey. No, don't say that. I'll get an email from your parents. The donkey should have locked up, but he didn't. Why was the donkey so at peace? Why was he so calm? And the answer is so simple, that the same hand that created the world and the same hand that calmed the wind and the waves is the same hand and the same person riding on the donkey. Applying this story, Becky Pippert wrote this, Jesus is the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. Jesus is the only one who can control us without destroying us. Now, if I were to ask you, are you afraid of anything? Maybe your mind would go to roller coasters or heights or, or maybe to uh, snakes. Typically, that's the things we think of. But is it possible that way down deep in your soul, you're afraid of a lot, lot more? 
You know, studying for this sermon this week, it occurred to me that I'm afraid of a lot, lot more. I'm somewhat scared of heights. I'm really scared of snakes. But you know, when you think about it, there's a lot of things that, a lot of fear that drives us even into adulthood. Maybe you're afraid of West Virginia's economy. Or, or you're just afraid of world events in general. Now, I watch the news, you watch the news, I read the paper, but this is a news flash. Did you know that the news agencies thrive on you being afraid? They want you to be afraid because what happens? If you're afraid, you're going to keep their news on all the time, right? And, and so whatever channel you watch or whatever paper you read, they want you to be in fear. Is that driving your life to the point you can no longer see opportunity? Are you afraid for a child? Are you afraid of what's happening to one of your children or one of your grandchildren? That's a legitimate fear. Are you afraid of losing your job? Are you afraid of not being able to find a, another job? Are you afraid because you have an aging parent? Are you the aging parent? Are you afraid this week because there's an appointment on your calendar that you do not want to keep? Are you afraid because you're going to get together with family this Easter, people that you really don't want to hang out with? Are you afraid you're going to be single the rest of your life? Are you afraid you're losing your strength? Maybe there's some other fear that's driving you under the surface. David Benner, the book that I'll recommend in a moment, he writes this, Fearful people live within restrictive boundaries. Fearful people usually appear quite cautious and conservative, or they narrow the horizons of their life by avoidance and compulsion. They also tend to be highly vigilant. In other words, they're hard workers, ever guarding against life's moving out of the bounds with which they feel most comfortable. Because of this, fear breeds control. People who live in fear feel compelled to remain in control. They attempt to control themselves and to control their world. Often, even with the best intentions, this spills over into others. This past week, we were having some friends over to the house. And before we have people over, my wife, who does the cooking, typically, I don't, she doesn't, knows better than to let me do that. I want to help her, right? So I want to like straighten up the house. So this week she was getting everything together and, and I knew the kind of like my, what my jobs were, turn on the lights, put up the dog toys, make sure everything's neat and orderly. And so I went around the house, turned on the lights, unlocked the doors, put up the dog toys. I come back around realizing, man, I got to make sure everything's perfect. I would make round two, turn on the lights, put up the dog toys, make sure everything's neat and orderly. And then a few minutes later, I'm like going around the house, put up the dog toys, and I just kept walking around. I didn't realize what I was doing until my wife, walks, Sarah, walks up to me, and she just gives me, wraps her arms around me and gives me a big old kiss. Just, it, it, never mind, none of your business. But she gives me a little kiss where I, and, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's, you know, it's my cologne, getting the job done, maybe. Maybe it's the way I look today. And, and she gives me a hug, gives me a kiss, and she whispers something in my ear. She says, honey. Your OCD is killing me. <laughs> Go sit down. I've got this. And I, I just occurred, studying for this sermon reminded me, what is it I'm afraid of? 
What is it that you're afraid of? The king of kings wants to calm your heart. And when you and me together realize that he's in charge, there's no stray molecule anywhere in the universe, it will begin to calm us and chill us out. The king calms me. I pray the king calms you. If you need prayer this morning, we have our prayer room again. If you have some anxiety, something you're worried about, feel free to see any of our men and women in our prayer room. We also have our connection table. If we can get you plugged in with a group of people who can love you and help you, uh, Jane Jackson Fowler will be out in the gathering space after the service. One more point we learned from the donkey. I love this one. Number four, the king loves me. The king loves me. There are two big indicators of the king's love in this passage. One is, is actually in Matthew 21, verse 2, which is the same passage in the different gospel. Matthew 21, 2 mentions there were two donkeys. It seems that Jesus allowed the mama donkey to come along with the baby donkey, which there's only one verse in the Bible that says that, but I just think that's neat now that I'm a dog owner, like, Jesus cared about the smallest things. You know, if you're a dog owner or a cat owner, you do things for your dog and cat that you'd never tell anybody about because you love them. You know what they need. You know what they want. Jesus loves. But we also see his love in the fact that he cried. Verses 41 and 42 says that Jesus wept as he entered Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was going to happen in 40 years. In AD 70, Jesus knew that Rome was going to come and ransack the city of Jerusalem. It happened just like Jesus said it would happen. They built a big encampment around Jerusalem. They starved him out. And then when they could hardly walk and hardly fight, Rome seized the city. They killed men, women, and children. Not everybody, but almost everybody. They toppled the temple. And so Jesus knew this was going to happen. And as he's riding into Jerusalem, he, maybe he saw a little boy named Michael cross the street, little Mikey. And maybe Jesus, because he's God, knows the future, that little Mikey who's playing without a care in the world in front of his donkey is going to die. Jesus sees the day in the future where, donkey, where Mikey's wife's going to be killed, where his children are going to be killed, and all the buildings are going to be destroyed. And Jesus starts to cry. Why did Jesus weep? Because he loved these people. He's riding on the donkey. The donkey experiences it. The crowd experiences. And his heart for the city, his heart for the people is not one of judgment. It's not one of condemnation. But it's one of love. Think of what he says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. He writes, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I had longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. If you can learn any lesson from the donkey today, learn this. The king loves you. 
Jesus is, has a heart for you. Jesus is burdened for you. He is not a cold, calculated God somewhere in a galaxy far, far away. But Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19 says, Know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The key to the Christian life is knowing God's love for you and then as a response, we can give that love back to him and back to others. When you think about God's thoughts towards you, what comes to your mind? I want to recommend this book, Surrender to Love by David Benner. It's about 105 pages, super small, but I want to encourage you to take like a month to read through it. It's a beautiful book, and I'd love for you to pick it up this week. What's the prayer that we can pray at the end? What's the prayer that we can pray in response to a sermon like this? King of love, please control my life. King of love, please control my life. Control is one of those things in our modern world that... People discourage you from giving up. Why would you surrender control to somebody else? Certainly somebody who could hurt you. But see, Jesus is different. This morning as we close, I want you to see that Jesus sees you. Jesus wants you. Jesus, he, he knows you. He wants to calm you. And Jesus loves you. And when we think about surrendering control to Jesus, this is a prayer that we all can pray. Imagine what would happen this week if, if you're like me and, and you hang on to your life like I hang on to my life. Imagine what would happen this week if you turned over your life like this. It's easier said than done. And you said, Lord, I am tired of trying to control my life. King of love, you please control my life instead. Think about how happier you would be. Maybe on your way in this morning, everybody in the car with you, they know, they know you got control of your life. Why don't you do this today? Think about how you could show Jesus better to your kids if you and me pray, dear Lord, King of love, please control my life. Think about how less critical we would be of other people when they're not just like us. Whenever they don't look like us or act like us or, or talk, think about how much more loving we would be if instead of us being on the throne, we let Jesus be on the throne. In the next few moments, what I wanna do is to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer or maybe one of your own words with me. No matter how long you've been a believer, in a moment, in your own words, give control of your life to the king. He sees you. He knows you. He wants you. He can calm you. And Jesus loves you like you've never been loved. Let's pray this prayer together. Father, we give our lives to you. King of love, please control our lives in the quietness of this moment with heads bowed and eyes closed I pray that every man woman and child 
would do just that. And instead of trying to control the universe like I do, that you would help them to give up control to the God who loves them first. Take just a minute with heads bowed and eyes closed, and then we'll stand and sing. King of love, please control our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.